0: Take a moment to consider your router. It's very important. It's what stands between you and the internet, the entire internet. So all of your home or office devices connect to it, and then it connects to your provider. The same is true in reverse. If I'm coming from the internet, I can be stopped at your router. But I know that in the past, some router manufacturers have been slow to update their routers. I also know that they bundle a lot of extra stuff. There are stories about open gateways to cloud storage that were intended as a feature, yet in reality are just another opening into the router itself. So what are you supposed to do? Enter OpenWRT. As the name suggests, it's open source. I heard about it through a few talks at Black Hat and DEF CON over the years. It's firmware designed to allow you to install it instead of the firmware that came with your router. This of course means that it's got all sorts of bells and whistles, but the good thing is you get to turn them on or off. Think of it as a Swiss army knife. Now I can configure my router to work specifically with my networks and know exactly what ports are open and not. This is a story about how everything was going great with OpenWRT, except for one thing, the updates. This is a story about a hacker who discovered that while OpenWRT had all the right security measures in place, A developer somewhere at some time left an extra space in the code that validates the SHA hash value with the update about to be installed. And that single space in the code opened the possibility that someone could load a malicious executable on your router or other internet connected device under the simple guise of a legitimate product update. In a moment, you'll meet the hacker who found that vulnerability. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about someone who consistently finds new and interesting vulnerabilities in some rather unusual places. And he does it using fuzzing. This is a story about Guido Rankin. He's a professional hacker. And he has found some amazing vulnerabilities in some high-profile software projects, such as Serial and OpenWRT, and he hasn't been doing it for all that long. So one has to wonder, how does he even begin to choose his targets?
1: Uh, it depends. Uh, sometimes I work for clients, and then I have to uh, to audit the client code. There's also uh, bug bounty. So especially pro, uh, software which has a good bug bounty program is attractive to me because it's making it makes money. And sometimes it's also pure uh, pure uh, interest uh, curiosity. For example, I've been working on a fast which tests cryptography, um, and I don't get directly paid for that, but it's it just uh, a strong desire to find the box and, and all those those applications. So. So it's uh, it's a a mix of uh, like, uh, whether it's uh, profitable or uh, if it's interesting to me.
0: Fuzzing, in case you didn't already know, is the process of feeding invalid inputs into a software and monitoring its behavior. Does it crash? Does it do something unexpected? And could that possibility lead to a vulnerability that can be exploited? Because fuzzing is so powerful and comprehensive, this led Guido to consider fuzzing as his tool of choice
1: um well it's funny actually uh, before I found out fuzzing, I was doing manual code review and I was just reading the code for hours on end and I heard about fuzzing but i I just thought it it can't be that good uh, my mind is much better than than fuzzing, so it actually t- it took a while uh, before i accept, before I tried fuzzing and when I tried it, I realized that it's it has very strong potential so and um these days, I still read some code of course but uh Fuzzing is, is the most important part because it's very effective. And uh, the appeal of fuzzing is a um, repetitive reward system. For example, uh, if you find a bug, then uh, you get an alert and you, you get the feeling, yes, I find another bug. And then you run the fuzzer again and another bug and another bug. And it's it's very rewarding in, in that way. So uh, that's that's one of the appeals of, of fuzzing to me. And it's, it's, it's just a very effective tool to do the job. Is fuzzing a commonplace tool or is it more of a niche? Uh, there are various uh, types of uh, vulnerability hunters. There, like I said, there are people who focus exclusively on web vulnerabilities, who might not be exposed to fuzzing that much. But I, I get the sense that in, in in the in the domain of people who uh, who are involved with C code and C code, and also Go and Rust, uh, fuzzing is increasingly popular and uh, for good reasons because uh, it's very effective. So I, I get the sense that it's uh, like uh, becoming ubiquitous, and uh, it's it's. Uh, essential an uh, essential tool for for checking the, the safety of codes
0: Guido doesn't just use fuzzing he of course also uses a wide range of security tools uh, well I use uh, film as an editor so uh, it's a program programmable
1: editor so it's very very useful if you have to change a lot of things uh, in the same way then it's uh, you, you can do it so with one command so I use it a lot um, <clears throat> I use c uh, CTAX is just uh, uh, you, you can extract the function names and stuff from from, from, a, from a source a source code and then find it easily. Um, I um, Let's see what, I, what what else I use. I use Clang as a compiler because it has uh, advanced feature, features for fuzzing, like uh, build and fuzzer support, address sanitizer, undefined behavior sanitizer. Those, those are basically my basic uh, basic tools. Sometimes I write uh, Python scripts to do stuff. Uh, so Python is something I use a lot. Uh, sometimes I need to do cal- calculations. I usually do that in Python. So the the rebel I write uh, the what I want to know and, and the Python, Apple, and then I get the answer. Um, so th- those are basically uh, the tools I use. I, I usually don't uh, have to reverse engineer uh, code, so I don't use uh, uh, tools like uh, IDA Pro and, and stuff like that, that, that other people use who are into malware uh, reverse engineering. I've done such things in the past, but these days I, I focus mostly on fuzzing and finding bugs. So-
0: there are the tools that every hacker uses, and then there's something more. Guido describes it as creativity it's how he looks at a given project
1: well how I usually work is when I have a client or I have to audit code for someone someone then um, they give me the code and the objective is to find box and the way I, I will do that is up to me so I, I, I get the the creativity to do it any way I want. And sometimes uh, sometimes it's very straightforward. You just ride a fuzzing harness and it's very straightforward. But sometimes there are more complex challenges. For example, with the uh, serial uh, fuzzer I wrote for uh, for, uh, for All Secure, there, uh, there was a lot of uh, novel stuff like uh, comparing whether uh, things serialize into the, the exact same uh, input, So uh, it, it requires thinking the way uh, about how uh, from our uh, program can break and, and then writing uh, a harness that uh, well, plays into that. So.
0: What's a fuzzing harness? In fuzzing, you always need an input. Sometimes the software provides that. Sometimes you want to fuzz an aspect of a protocol or a whole software library that doesn't necessarily have obvious inputs. So there, you need to create what's called a harness, a way of focusing the fuzzer.
1: When you have a a program that you want to test for a box, like, for example, OpenSSL is fairly well-known. It's an SSL library. Then um, what you do is you create an entry point into that library. So uh, the the library has all kinds of functions. For example, it has a function of, uh, like, connecting to uh, a server and then you need to create an entry point between the foster and the, and the library. So you need, it's, it's like a bridge between the, the foster and the library and you, from the harness it's just a, a, a c, c file and you need to call the library from that with, with certain data so uh, it's it can, it can be very simple a harness can be uh, just 10 lines or something and it can also be incredibly complex for example i've been working on a fuzzer which uh, which is now uh thirty two thousand lines it's a harness of thirty two thousand lines so you can make it as complex as you want and uh, you can keep adding uh, new tests and uh, new features and, and so on so uh, it's basically a dyna- dynamics test suit. I guess you'd call it that.
0: Cool. So we have our targets. We have some tools, and we have Guido's experience and creativity. But how does he really start looking for vulnerabilities?
1: Um, well, um, I, I download the target, so I compile it uh, to see if, if that works. Um, one type of low-hanging fruit is just running the test suite and see if there any any uh, things pop up. Sometimes you can uh, or you can run the test suite with Valgrind, so memory box can detect it, which otherwise don't get detected. That's like a type of low-hanging fruit that you can easily easily catch. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I I have some regular expressions to uh, to look through the source code for like uh, uh, certain certain things like which which shouldn't be done like undefined behavior and stuff uh, like like integer overflowing and stuff. So I look at the source code. That is one way to go about it. And of course I write a fuzzing harness. I try to divide an uh, application into multiple parts and then fuzz each part with a bit of fuzzing. And that's how I usually do it.
0: Like a lot of hackers, Guido gained experience participating in bug bounties. He started with web-based attacks, looking for cross-site scripting errors and such. Eventually, though, he drifted into applications, source code, and fuzzing.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, some years ago when I started doing bug bounties, I also was active in uh, web uh, web-based vulnerabilities like uh, cross-site scripting uh, and so forth, and uh, I had fun doing that. But uh, eventually, I realized that um, my jam is, is fuzzing and uh, C plus code and other source codes, and not so much uh, the web. So, I at some point I, I just stopped doing the web entirely, and I'm now exclusively focused on uh, on uh, source code auditing.
0: One more thing about fuzzing. It not only identifies crashes, it also identifies anomalies. That's how Heartbleed was found. After sending invalid data to OpenSSL, the return on the heartbeat function was anomalous, so that it required more investigation. And so it was much more interesting in terms of a vulnerability. That's one reason why Guido uses fuzzing tools. They can expose more of the anomalous behavior.
1: I would generally remark that... Um... I think fuzzing is associated with memory unsafe uh, codes like C and C++, but like I said with the example of Serial and uh, OpenWRT and many other examples, that it's also very effective for, uh, for safe safe languages like Go and Rust and even uh, JavaScript. There are JavaScript uh, fuzzers now, Python fuzzers, you can do any language, uh, so and, and you, you Even if a bug is not a security bug, then it it can still be very important to fix and find.
0: So what do we mean when we talk about memory unsafe languages like C and C++? In C and C++ and some other
1: languages, you can manipulate the memory directly. And uh, this has the advantage of being very fast. Um, these languages are usually very fast compared to, say, uh, JavaScript or Python. Those are relatively slow. But the downside is that you can accidentally corrupt memory and then um, your program crashes in the best case. And in the worst case, it can lead to actual uh, exploits like the one I talked about uh, found by Google, uh, Project Zero, where they can just hack your iPhone without you even knowing. So that's the downside of uh, memory unsafety.
0: At the time I was preparing this episode, Google's Project Zero disclosed a significant vulnerability in Apple's iPhone and other connected products. Google's Ian Beer, who first reported the vulnerability to Apple in November of 2019, published a detailed technical account of how he found and developed the exploit. In brief, the vulnerability allowed anyone exploiting it to instantly take over someone's device without even touching it. Beer likened the vulnerability to a magic spell that allowed anyone to gain remote access. Basically, iPhones, iPads, Macs, and Washes use a protocol called Apple Wireless Direct Link, AWDL, to create mesh networks. These local or mesh networks are used for features like airdrops, so you can easily beam photos and files to other iOS devices, and Sidecar, so you can quickly turn an iPad into a secondary screen. Not only did Beer figure out a way to exploit that, he also found a way to force AWDL to turn on even if the user had not turned it on before. Fortunately, Apple patched part of it in early 2020 and then the rest later in the year. What's relevant to our conversation is Beer also released a proof of concept code which he described the vulnerability as a fairly trivial buffer overflow programming error in C++ code in the kernel parsing untrusted data exposed to remote attackers. So, as Guido said, memory unsafe languages like C++ allow for memory manipulation, and sometimes those manipulations can lead to pretty severe exploits.
1: But memory unsafe languages are still uh, very popular, especially in embedded environments like uh, OpenWRT and uh, also C++. Plus is still very, uh, very widely spread. Uh, it's used in uh, game engines and other things, cryptocurrencies. So uh, those thing, things will still be around for a long while, and uh, we are not yet at the point that we will be uh, using exclusively memory safe languages.
0: Before he found the OpenWRT, Guido found other high-profile vulnerabilities, for example, one in Serial. Serial is a very lightweight, highly used general-purpose serialization library in C++. With Serial, arbitrary data types can be turned into different representations, such as compact binary encodings, XML, or JSON. This has to be a one-to-one match. So it can't be that I send $1,000 to the bank, but the bank only records $100. That simply wouldn't work. Yet, there it was, and it happened to be in serial before it was patched.
1: Yeah, so uh, one, one uh, type of box in, in C++ code is uh, memory vulnerabilities, but there are in fact a lot of other types of vulnerabilities as well like serialization bugs Uh, serial is a JSON uh, encoder an XML encoder so if you encode like a monetary value like uh, $1,000 and you encode it into serial and you then decode it deserialize it and it comes out as $100 that would be a bug because if you send $1,000 to the bank and the bank thinks you want to send $100 that's an issue so I focused heavily on whether uh, on on verified I better uh, whatever you put input in, into cereal comes out exactly the same way. So I. I, I, I i spent quite a lot of time on that uh, so i call it uh, serialization symmetry and that's actually a, a bug uh, if that exists that, that could lead to to severe problems like i mentioned if you have some monetary amount of or whatever uh, if, the, if the, the data you want to send across doesn't uh, exactly reproduce in the exact same way that's that's a, that's an issue so i focused on memory bugs, but also on uh, serialization symmetry and then uh, other things as well uh, g- came along like uh, Use of undefined uh, memory, the uh, crashes, uh, hangs, and so forth. So, um, yeah, those are the things I focused on.
0: Okay, so let's talk about CVE 2020 7982. It affects OpenWRT. Armed with his various tools, earlier this year, Guido turned his attention to OpenWRT, but he had no idea whether he'd find anything. He started with the update package manager. O-P-K-G.
1: I think I wanted to fuzz the, the package manager, and in the process of that, I, I kind of found out that it was letting letting. Uh, for example, I uh, to fuzz the package manager, I had to uh, disable the code that compares the hash to the to the to the to the binary. But uh, actually, I accidentally found out about this because uh, it, it was letting through code that. I wasn't expecting it to because I had suspected that it was checking against the hash. So actually, actually this was an accidental discovery.
0: Since OpenWrt doesn't include SSL, OPKG includes two files. One is a list of SHA-256 hash values, and the other is the update package itself. Whenever the package is run, its resulting hash should match the value on the list. However, Guido found... There was a leading space in the validation process, and that triggered some interesting characteristics. For example, with that space, OPKG can believe that SHA-56 value is blank, and having a blank is very different than having a value that could be wrong, which would prevent the package from installing. In this case, rather than fail to install, OpenWRT simply skipped the hash validation process altogether, and that's more dangerous
1: yeah here the the process of updating could have actually resulted in uh, code execution if it worked as intended then it would be entirely secure but due to uh like like um I'm bugging the code, they weren't actually verifying the, the SHA hash against the package, so uh, you could bypass it entirely. So if a malicious actor was uh, was acting as a man in the middle on your connection, then he could could send malicious code and it wasn't actually verified against the hash. So that way, a malicious actor could, could uh, execute uh, arbitrary code on your computer.
0: Guido's talking about a person in the middle of attack where a bad actor, if on the same network at the same time could inject his or her own malicious code. One might argue that this is an edge case, a rare circumstance since the updates are not automatic and they must be user initiated. But I would also argue a vulnerability is a vulnerability, even if it's not easy to exploit. And there's also a different type of vulnerability.
1: A lot of, uh... Uh, focus on, on security research is, is about uh, memory bugs but this wasn't actually a memory bug this was just a, a small um, logic bug in, in the OpenWRT code where it caused that the the hash wasn't compared to the to the binary and the, this wasn't a memory bug it wasn't corrupting memory or anything like That it wasn't like heartbleeds it was actually uh, like uh, I think a single space was added where it shouldn't have been. And that caused the whole, the whole uh, Rube Goldstein uh, machine of verifying the, the code wasn't executing as intended. So uh, this interesting, an interesting example of how uh, non-memory safety bugs can also have severe consequences.
0: So Guido's sitting there with this discovery. The adrenaline is rushing. He found something big. And while the temptation is to go public, the reality is, is that you should inform the vendors first. This is Responsible Disclosure 101. Generally, it is good procedure to give the vendor at least 90 days heads up. In that time, the vendor can verify the vulnerability and address it with a workaround or a patch. In an ideal world, that is. In reality, some vendors don't even think about the next step beyond releasing the code. Some don't even have addresses in which researchers like Guido can contact them. But with the open-source projects, usually there's a way to contact the owner or the project maintainer.
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, the usual way to do it is uh, you you contact uh, the maintainer. There's some usually someone who is actually uh, actively working on a program, so you send them a private email. Uh, in this case, I reached out to the maintainer, but uh, I think he was pretty busy, and he uh, he wasn't super responsive. To it. So eventually the box uh, didn't get fixed. So I think eventually we went uh, by uh, going with public disclosure which means that you just published uh, the box on the on the github uh, issue tracker uh, but uh, so, uh, the process uh, for example I've also also worked on open uh, WRT and then I I sent a private email to the security address of open WRT they acknowledge or refused to uh, refute the bug. if they acknowledge it they were gonna fix then I uh, I verify that fix uh, works and then they um, they set a date for uh, public disclosure and that, then at that date, they send out an advisory, and everyone who is using OpenWRT gets the adversary and is prompted to update.
0: When Guido went public in March 2020, OpenWRT had already been patched, and the community was strongly encouraged to update it immediately. And Guido has also researched other things, such as cryptocurrencies, like Ethereum.
1: One, one interesting thing with cryptocurrencies is that it is a distributed system. And all the, the nodes, all the, the people who are running their client, their Bitcoin clients, they have to um, respond uh, uh, to the to the network uh, data in exactly the same way. For example, they all uh, verify the transaction uh, that comes through. But if, for example, if one client does one thing and the other client does another thing, then you get a chain split. Then two uh, groups of clients uh, start doing a different thing. So that it, it is very important in cryptocurrencies that all the, the clients do exactly the thing that is prescribed in the protocol and uh, I, I worked for ethereum uh, a while and they have a very complex uh, uh, code that uh, that it's called, it's actually a virtual machine that that runs runs for each transaction and um, if there is a, is a difference between one client and the other, then this can lead to change splits. And I actually found a couple of those bugs. It's, it's a complete VM. Um, they have implementations in Go in Rust and C plus plus, and they have to do exactly the same. And if they don't do exactly the same, then you get change splits, which is an issue because it it um, it, it uh, weakens the strength of the network.
0: So, listening to this, you might be wondering if Guido goes in with a plan. If he thinks there's a bug, and then he goes about proving it, he does. In general, in the vulnerability world, there are deliberate proofs more often than accidents.
1: Yeah, it's more common to to like uh, set out to prove something and then uh, find a, find the bug or not. But accidental discoveries are, happen occasionally, but not that often.
0: And for those of you who are thinking that Guido might be steadily working behind the scenes before he went public. He's actually relatively new at computer programming and vulnerability research.
1: Uh, no, it's actually about um, well, I dropped out of school uh, when I was like fourteen, fifteen, and then uh, like until until I was thirty, uh, I uh, I didn't work. I did uh, volunteer v- volunteering, but I didn't work in uh, a, like uh, paid work, uh, let alone uh, computer uh, IT stuff. So uh, I actually picked picked a startup uh, when I was about thirty, and then I started doing bug bounties again, and uh, eventually I started freelancing again
0: sounds like we'll continue to have vulnerabilities in ubiquitous memory-unsafe languages like C and C++. That will keep fuzz testers like Guido very busy, at least for now. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I remain Robert Famosi.